Welcome to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I'm your host, Les Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Vic Lombardi. Now, each episode, we'll bring inspiring interviews with great athletes, celebrities, and the most brilliant minds in medicine on how to beat adversity to win in life. So thanks for spending time with us as we bring you one step closer to becoming your best unstoppable self. Our guest is former college and NFL quarterback Brian Greasy, now one of the voices in the Monday Night Football booth. Hey, Brian, how are you? I'm doing great. Good to be with you, too. Wondering how your life has changed since you've gotten this, I guess you can call it a promotion, to the Monday Night Football booth. I mean, you were with ESPN for years and years, since 2009, I believe. But now a little more high profile. How's that changed things for you? You know, uh, Les, it's, uh, it's been really a wonderful experience. I, I, um, I can't start out, you know, telling you about the experience without referencing, you know, what we're all going through, right, this year um, and, and how thankful I am to be working, to be um, traveling to games, to be in stadiums doing NFL games, sometimes we're the only people in the stadium watching the game. I mean, how fortunate are we to be on TV calling these games and, and more important than ever to bring the game home to fans that can't attend. Um, so it's been a really important work for us. Um, and it's been a ton of fun to work with Steve Levy, who's been my partner now for five years. He's a great guy. I have a ton of fun with him. Uh, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, we love football and love the game. Uh, and then to be working with Lewis Riddick, who's been doing this for a while, brings a different perspective uh, from the defensive side and, and, and from a front office perspective. Um, so it's been good to, um, to, to work with him. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we hope that people are, are entertained and have a good time. Maybe they learn a little bit something new about the game that they, that they hadn't learned before. Um, so it's been a it's been a, a wonderful year so far. And um, again, just thankful for the opportunity. Well, you know, the history of Monday Night Football, Brian, we don't need to tell you um, in, in the eyes of uh, Gifford, Cosell, Dandy, Don, John Gruden, so many big names. And you're there. You, you are doing what those guys did at one point. When did you find out? When did you know, hey, I'm doing Monday Night Football? Uh, it's a funny story, uh, Vic. This had been, the decision had been looming for six, eight months, right? And, and uh, there was questions as to whether the, uh, the season was even going to go. Um, there was questions on the college season and the questions on the NFL season. And so the decision was, was delayed significantly. Um, so we were waiting, you know, we knew we were in the mix and waiting to see if we were going to be uh, the ones. And so I actually went on a hike. I went up to, uh, hike. I'd never been up to, to uh, Long's Peak. I'd never done that before. And I went with a couple of friends and we hiked Long's Peak. And you know, it's such a 12 hour hike, you know, it's a long day. So we're on the trail at 2 a.m. We get to the summit around uh, 7, 38 a.m. And, uh, and my phone uh, pops up uh, a text message from, you know, vice president at ESPN. Hey, I need to talk to you ASAP. Well, I'm on the top of Long's Peak, okay? You know, I don't have <laughs> cell service. So first I tried to text him back, text undeliverable, right? <laughs> then I tried to call no service, okay? So I knew something was up. Why would he be texting me at 7 o'clock in the morning? But I'm five hours away from cell service. So by the time I get back down to Long's Peak and finally get cell service, I had like 80 text messages on my phone, 
you know, Brooke, my wife had called me eight times. And so I literally was the last person to find out that I got the job on Monday Night Football. Very cool. Brian, Vic and I have both known you for a long, long time. I've known your resume forever. But when I was doing some reading about you before we, we asked you to, to be on the podcast, it struck me your career in so many ways has mirrored your father's. And, and, and your father, for those who don't know, is Bob Greasy, Hall of Fame quarterback who played for the Miami Dolphins, was a great college player at Purdue as well. You were a great college player at Michigan. You won a national championship there. You were the Rose Bowl MVP. You went on to an 11-year career in the NFL playing quarterback. Your dad played for quite a while and won uh, Super Bowls with the Miami Dolphins. You have a Super Bowl ring being a backup quarterback with the Broncos for Super Bowl 33. And, and I'm wondering... Was this by design or did you fall into some of these things? Was it just serendipitous? And was there pressure on you to live up to your father's Hall of Fame career? Yeah, it's a good question, Les. And I would say, no, it was not by design. But at the same time, you know, I learned a lot from my dad, both as a player and as a broadcaster. And so I definitely thought it helped me in both of those arenas. But um, growing up, I didn't want to be a quarterback, right? Like I loved football and my two older brothers had been, you know, safeties and one was a linebacker and we were trying to avoid the direct comparison to our, you know, hall of fame quarterback father. And so I, I tried to play other positions. I tried to play linebacker when it turned out that I didn't really like to hit people that much. And, and then I tried to play tight end, but I wasn't fast enough to be a, a tight end and I wasn't big enough to block anybody. And so um, one day I caught a, I caught a pass and I was, I think I was in ninth grade and I came back to, uh, I threw the ball back to the ball boy and, um, the coach saw me throw it back to the ball boy. He's like, Hey, Greece, you know, tomorrow you're going to go over with the quarterbacks. And uh, I was like, yeah, it's probably about time. And, uh, that was the only place that I could play, you know, and, and continue to, to grow as a player. So, and then I fell in love with playing quarterback and I loved it. And I knew that that was the only position I could really play. And then I got really good at it. So that's how, that's how the football part of it went. Well, Brian, you're, you're, you're a cerebral guy and the quarterback is the most cerebral position on the field. It's only natural you're there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well that part of it too, but it started with the physical limitations. Less. <laughs> so, so, and then, yeah. And then, um, you know, I, I was able to kind of grow my mind in, in football and, and that's, that's how I made it. And that's how my dad made it. Cause he wasn't uh, a physically gifted guy either. You know, he's six, one, 190 pounds soaking wet. Um, but he knew how to think about the game. And, uh, and so that's, you know, that's kind of, uh, how the, the football part of it went. Then when I retired in 2009, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. thought about coaching for maybe 15 minutes or so and then realized that was not the kind of life that I wanted to live and traveling from place to place. And I got a call from ESPN, and it probably was because they were familiar with my dad and knew that he was a great broadcaster. And they said, hey, would you be interested? Just come and check it out. And I thought, you know, there's no, no skin off my nose. Uh, if it doesn't work out, you know, I can go do something else. And so I went and I, and I talked to them and they said, Hey, just do a season. Uh, and I did a season and I ended up enjoying it. It was a, it was a great way for me to be connected to the game. Um, so that's how the, the broadcasting thing happened. So it, it wasn't by design, but I, I do think that I had a leg up because my dad had done both jobs, done them well, and really taught me a lot of lessons about both. 
Do you think there's value, Brian, that toward the end of your career, perhaps you didn't, you know, you had some stumbles, you had some adversity. Is there value in that now that you're calling a game? Because you know what it's like in their shoes. Oh yeah, no question. I mean, we'll we'll do games like okay, we're we're doing a game this coming Monday. Mm-hmm. It's the Philadelphia Eagles and Carson Wentz in Philadelphia. Now they're not going to have fans. Probably a benefit for Carson because <laughs> if they did. Um, he would hear it. Uh, but I've heard that. I've heard people, you know, boo and, and the dis, uh, discontent. And I know how hard it is. So absolutely. I think you can't be a broadcaster if you haven't experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And I've been at both. And uh, I think it definitely helps me doing my job. You use the word adversity. Let's go back to when you were 12 years old. And uh, adversity is too mild uh, of a word to describe what you went through. You lost your mom, Judy. Bob's wife, Judy Greasy, uh, at 12 years old in 1988. Do you recall the emotions you went through as a 12-year-old when you lost your mom at such a young age? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I live them every day, Les. You know, I um, uh, had a lot of emotions, um, but probably the one that was most prevalent was anger. And, um, you know, I was angry at society for not being able to cure cancer. Um, I was angry at God for taking my mom from me. You know, she was a person who was so good to so many people. She was a nurse by trade and she was always caring for others. And I just could not understand why God would take somebody like that uh, so early at 44 years old. Um, But probably most dangerous to my development was I was angry at myself, you know, for not being a better son and and not having a chance to go back and, and make that right. And those, that anger manifested in negative ways, um, both personally um, and relationally. Uh, it, it impacted the way that I operated at school, what was important to me or not important to me. Uh, I felt like the only 12-year-old boy in the world that had just lost his mom. And that's a difficult place to be with those uh, you know, adult, grown-up uh, feelings without kind of the understanding as to the tools that will help get me through that in a healthy manner. And um, so you guys are well aware of how some of those uh, struggles manifested in my personality. You saw me come to Denver uh, as a rookie and as a second year player, and I had built up a wall around me. And that wall started when I was 12 years old because I didn't have anybody to help me to deal with that, those difficult emotions and so I felt like when I, when I had adversity, the only person I could depend on was me. And I built this wall around me so nobody could get in. And so when I had adversity in Denver um, and the media wanted to know, hey, wh- who is this guy? What's wrong with this guy? Why is he so uh, difficult to deal with? That, that was a manifestation of not handling grief and loss when I was 12 years old. And it had built up through college and then into uh, my, my career. And so it was affecting me professionally. So it wasn't until we started Judy's house in 2001 that I really began to deal with that grief and and that loss. And, and so Judy's house became a manifestation of my grief process. And it only was until I was able to help other people and honor my mom that I actually started to deal with the grief. And that's the story of, of Judy's house and how it kind of grew out of me into the Denver community. So, so Brian, let's let's just reset very quickly here. You and your wife Brooke, a clinical psychologist herself, started Judy's House, and the way it's described is uh, it's a children's grief support center. 
uh, right now located in, in Denver, Colorado. And its purpose is to connect and heal children uh, and families who are grieving the loss of a loved one. How does somebody become eligible to go to Judy's house, to be accepted at Judy's house? We serve anyone from any walk of life that has lost a loved one. And a loved one could be anyone that they love, right? I mean, grief is tied directly to a relationship that's built out of love. And um, so, you know, we have high schoolers that lose a friend to a car accident that, that come to Judy's house. But um, anybody is, is eligible. We don't charge for services. Um, and we accept anyone and everyone. So there's no age limit? No. So, um, you know, we serve kids aged 3 to 18. Uh, that's our core services. Uh, and then we have a young adult group uh, of 18 to 25-year-olds that we serve as well. But the only requirement, obviously, is that is that there is a person in the family in those age groups. So you're 12 years old, and, and I know ultimately it led to the formation of Judy's House, but at, at age 12, what resources did you have? Where did you go? Because I know death affects different people different ways. But if you went back and asked your mother, was she afraid of death? Probably not as much as she was fearful of how it would impact her children, right? Right. How did it impact you? And how would Judy's house have helped you back then? Yeah. Well, I, I remember my, my mom, you know, she knew she was dying. And the thing that she regretted the most was she was not going to be able to see her kids grow up, her grandkids be born, right? And have birthdays. Um, she was going to miss those moments. And she talked to us about that. And you can imagine how difficult that conversation was for her, but you know, for me, it, it, um, I would have benefited from from, from having Judy's house where I could just go and meet other 12 year olds that were going through the same thing and know that I wasn't so different Vic. And that, uh, what I was, what I was experiencing was no fault of my own that I hadn't done anything wrong. Right. The, the fact that, you know, I had this anger that I couldn't go back and fix, you know, some of what I had done as a normal kid, you were just being a normal kid. And, and, but that, that uh, I didn't have the chance. I didn't have the opportunity. I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. And that's why I was so passionate and still to this day, I'm passionate about uh, no child ever having to grieve alone. Losing a loved one at that age is an adverse childhood event, right? I don't know if you guys are familiar with the whole, uh, the research around ACEs and these adverse childhood events, uh, whether it's the child abuse, right, or losing a parent should be one of those. I can't think of uh, anything that a child would have to overcome that's worse than losing a loved one. So we're working hard to to make sure that that the, the services and the programs uh, that we have established in Denver through Judy's House live in this community for the long term um, and sharing that with other communities around the country. So besides the fellowship and the fact that everyone around them has suffered a loss, do you have something in practice to help them cope? Is there a, a format that you use and what is it? Yeah, it's important. I think we started out, Vic, as a peer support model uh, where because I, I felt like what I needed was to meet other kids going through the same thing. Uh, we pretty quickly realized that um, that was therapeutic, certainly. Um, but that uh, the the families and the kids that were coming to Judy's house needed uh, much more than that. They needed uh, tools, uh, coping skills. And um, and so that's where Brooke, you know, with her, she's a Ph.D. clinical psychologist, got her Ph.D. at CU. And uh, she went to work developing curriculum uh, around some of what she had studied 
uh, and child maltreatment and, and some of the cognitive behavioral therapies that uh, we could integrate into the curriculum at Judy's house um, that would go well with that peer support model. And so uh, we, we quickly developed a best-in-class service of peer support, normalizing the experience of grief with clinical resources and coping skills that have been steeped in research. And um, that's the curriculum that we have developed. It's a 10-week curriculum. Uh, the families come once a week for 10 consecutive weeks. Uh, they're with us for an hour and a half. Uh, and each week is, has a topic. Uh, and each topic has a, a specific coping skill that we're hoping to build um, in that family. And so when, when grief hits or when any adversity hits, right, we all need to have positive coping skills. Negative coping, right, could be uh, drug and alcohol abuse, could be getting into fights in school. That's what happened to me, right? My anger manifested in acting out in school, which led to other negative outcomes. Teen suicide is a big one, okay? We are serving currently 20% of our population of families at Judy's house are survivors of suicide in their family and need specific intervention help. They've had a parent that's modeled potentially a behavior for them and are at risk. These kids are at risk. And so we're trying to prevent those negative outcomes, build co healthy coping skills to get them back on a healthy developmental trajectory. Brian, did you at least win some of those fistfights? Not many. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, you walked into the Monday night booth at a young age, and here's to uh, many more years to come. But I have to ask you a question that I always get different results from players turned athlete, uh, broadcasters. More nerves. Is it more nerve wracking going into a game as a player or as a broadcaster? Oh, man. Well, there's no comparison to playing, Vic. I, <laughs> that's a completely different ball game. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't look at them the same way. You're not in the arena. You're not winning and losing. So it's different. Uh, but I do, en I do enjoy it as a second career. Um, it's not as competitive, obviously. Um, I view it as, as, as fun. Uh, I love talking about the game. I love giving a, a fan at home, taking them inside and, and, and allowing them to, to feel what it's like to be on the, on the field, to be putting themselves in the head of a coach or a quarterback. What were they thinking here? Why were they thinking about it? Um, you know, that that's a different challenge. And um, certainly there's, there's butterflies, there's nerves, you know, now on Monday night, we broadcast to 13 million people, but I, I just, I refuse to get caught up in all that. Um, I'm not worried about my place or my persona. I really am there to serve the fan um, and, and have a good time doing it. Whereas when I was on the field, that was a completely different ball game. Brian, it, it, it's, it's, it's fun and it's always uh, informational for someone to come out years later and, and tell them why. Like, why was I this way? We, we all have a why story, right? And for yeah. you to give us the why, it's um, – beyond revealing and we appreciate that yeah well thank you guys and, and kudos to you for uh continuing to have the conversation and and using your stories to educate people and and supporting everyone through you know the important process of of dealing with cancer because uh, it's it's affecting all of us there's no question about it so kudos to you guys thanks brian we'll be watching on monday nights all right guys when we come back, we'll be joined by Dr. Stephen Berkowitz. He's an expert in the field of grief and trauma for children and adolescents. Plus, he has some very interesting things to say about how this pandemic is affecting all of us. 
We Are Unstoppable is sponsored by University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, a world-class medical destination at the forefront of education, science, medicine, and healthcare, right in the center of the Rocky Mountain region. We're joined by Dr. Stephen Berkowitz. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of Colorado School of Medicine with a specialty in child and adolescent psychiatry. He's also the director of the START Center on the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Hello, Dr. Berkowitz. Good morning. How are you? Doing fine. Um, I know you listened to the Brian Greasy interview earlier, and he spoke about the grief he felt from losing his mother at a very early age. He was only 12 years old, and it troubled him for many, many years afterwards. He had anger and, and a number of other issues well into adulthood. Why do you believe grief is such a difficult emotion for children and adolescents, not just to cope with, but to eventually shake? Well, there are a number of issues. One, you know, grief is a very complex set of emotions and concerns and the loss, you know, just the loss of anything, frankly, often controls how we think and how we feel about things. And the loss of a parent is absolutely one of the most devastating losses a child can have. And in fact, the, the, the research has shown that one of the strongest predictors of adult depression is the loss of a parent before the age of 12. And probably one of the major reasons for that is that the remaining parent becomes so important and such a huge role in a child's life that the child tends to do as well as the remaining parent does, the surviving parent does. And that's often really difficult for the surviving parent. Well, as you know, Brian finally recognized it, and because of that, he started Judy's House to help other children manage their grief. I understand you're doing some work with Judy's House. What are you doing exactly? Uh, so we've been um, working off and on with Judy's House around uh, evaluation, uh, thinking about other approaches to grief interventions, and uh, Brooke Greasy, who directs Judy House, is actually on our faculty. I would imagine it's an extremely complicated process, just recovering from trauma, especially for children, because they might not have the tools, the adult tools um, to, to deal with it. So what makes it so difficult or complicated to help children get through that pain? Again, I, you know, as you said, you know, the, the cognitive capacity to recognize the reality versus imagination, wishes, hopes, idealization um, is, is really, you know, just not available to, to kids at a younger age. And so they really rely on parents and authority figures to mediate their experiences for them. And so it, it, really, it really is that we need others to mourn effectively. And when, other, you know, when the adults are having difficulty mourning or dealing with the situation, uh, it's really hard for children. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, I think that is so common. M you know, many adults who um, are religious or observant, you know, talk about heaven as being a better place. Many younger kids don't realize that heaven is, in a way, an imaginary way of thinking about the afterlife. We don't know the details. 
And so one of the first responses is, you know, I want to be in heaven with mommy or daddy or grandma. And then you have to, you know, kind of backtrack and explain what you mean by a better place in heaven. That's interesting. Um, at what point should somebody seek professional help for this? Because many times when we're grieving, we don't realize we're grieving and it manifests itself in, in so many ways. So at what point does one seek out help for this? Well, I, I want to back up on that question a, a little bit, which is, um, you know, mourning is a natural process. And most people are able to mourn successfully uh, through most experiences. Children have a more complicated uh, set of issues, as I described previously. So I think it's important that we don't jump the gun, right, on professional intervention. You know, supporting the parent to help support the child is really one of the first steps, I think, in helping children mourn. And then seeking professional help is really after several weeks post-funeral and all those things when the child is really just not functioning well, not, not wanting to go to school, uh, not able to, uh, you know, attend to, to their schoolwork or other chores that they need to do. Tearfulness, ongoing, you know, isolation, uh, those sorts of things are a time where you want, may want to seek help. I will suggest, regardless, that the first phase of help is really working with the, the remaining caregiver and parent to support the child effectively and see how that goes before entering, um, you know, professional help. Now, something like Judy's house is interesting because uh, one of the most important things about receiving that kind of help is being able to have that experience that others have with you. One of the things about mourning or traumatic events is feeling isolated, feeling alone. And so just knowing that you're not, that others have similar experiences, similar reactions is really important. Now, I think a lot of people are experiencing grief right now and stress and and, and all those types of emotions because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Are, are you being flooded in your office with, with people who are going through this right now? And, and how should we deal with this? Well, so I think it's really, you know, God, very complicated. We are all grieving. Uh, whether we know someone who is impacted by COVID or worse, has, has died from it. But we're grieving the, a loss of, of our lives, our traditional lives. Uh, and I think nothing illustrates that more than Thanksgiving. Um, it was the first time in 28 years that I had not gathered with my family for Thanksgiving. And I mourned that. I, that was a loss for me. I get that. That's my favorite holiday. Yeah. And not having, not being surrounded by family and friends w- was very bothersome to me. So I get that. Yeah. No, I think that that's a, a, a great example of a loss that we're feeling. And so we're all experiencing some sense of grief and mourning right now. And then if you have an event, a death for whatever, COVID, death of a loved one from, from a heart attack, it is really complicated. You know, you don't have what we typically have, which is the kind of support that uh, we seek from friends and family in these, in these events. You're, you know, we're more isolated. I have a personal example. Um, uh, a cousin of mine, a second cousin, died about a month ago from COVID. Her daughter, who I am close to, lives in New Mexico. 
her mother lives in New Jersey. There was no way to effectively have a funeral, to mourn, to gather. And it's, it's really quite devastating, though, the things that we rely on to gather, to celebrate one's life, to mourn one's life and death. It's not available to us in the same way. And so we see a lot of people um, who are grieving in all sorts of ways, but primarily, I would say, grieving the loss of their, the lives that they had led. Yeah, we need to say goodbye, don't we? Yes, <laughs> we do. But, but the problem is, is saying goodbye to what? Yeah. You know, there's, it's easier to say goodbye to an individual than it is to a way of life. And not knowing what the, the end is going to look like. What are the changes that are going to occur? So all that uncertainty, you know, mourning is a process that has some certainty to it. And we don't have that right now. I mentioned at the beginning that you're the director of the START Center at the uh, CU Anschutz Medical Campus. What is the work that you're doing there with START? And, and what does START stand for? START is a Stress, Trauma, and Adversity Research and Treatment Center. Uh, so we, we are a lifespan center that treats traumatic stress and other trauma-related uh, disorders and, and problems. I think what makes us somewhat unique in our clinical work is that we really have a family focus. We recognize that the family system is always impacted by individuals' trauma and that they need to be able to understand it, support the recovery process, and in some cases, uh, seek their own treatment. So that's our clinical work. Right now, one of the primary foci that we've had is really... Um, supporting healthcare providers uh, and educators um, who are struggling mightily with the issues around the pandemic, around safety, and just you know complete and utter overwhelm and burnout from the number of issues that have arisen. So, if somebody's experiencing any of the things you just described, how, how can they reach out? How can they get help from you uh, and the Start Center? So, the Start Center is that's easy. Um, all you have to do is. Uh, Google the Start Center at CU and you can reach us. I also say statewide, there is a crisis counseling program that's funded by FEMA and SAMHSA that the state is implementing and it's regional. So there are centers across the state now who are working with people around uh, issues related to COVID, whether it's mourning, grief, or you know, more uh, traumatic stress-related symptomatology. The best way to locate your local center is to look at Colorado Spirit. That's the name of the program. Um, if you Google that, you will find um, numerous centers across the state uh, who can support you either in person or virtually. And Dr. Berkowitz, if you're outside of Colorado, where can you seek help? Uh, the best way to do that is to use the SAMHSA crisis line which has a whole section devoted to COVID-related issues, and that's national. They'll direct you to local resources, uh, provide support, uh, and that's just uh, been around for a number of years, but, you know, it's really a disaster response model. Dr. Stephen Berkowitz, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. 
You want more unstoppable stories? Subscribe to our podcast wherever you find and listen to podcasts. You can even ask your smart speaker to play We Are Unstoppable podcasts. And you can visit us at our website, unstoppablepodcasts.com, for more episodes and ways to subscribe. That's unstoppablepodcasts.com. Subscribe today.